Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, live on Sirius XM Channel 111 every weekday at noon east. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show and happy Halloween. I'm going to tell you more about my Halloween plans just a little bit later in the show and a Strudwick story you're not going to want to miss. Uh, Well, as Americans prepare to celebrate today, and it really is a sweet day for us, isn't it? I hope it can be, whether you're Jewish or not, too. Um, Abby was just there with her littles. She's got two little girls at the parade that they go to. I mean, those are the things, right? Those are the things life is made out of. That's what makes life meaningful. Just to see your little one walk in the Halloween parade in her little costume. Please don't forget to do that stuff in the midst of all this darkness and madness. Like the human soul can only take so much, so much darkness coming in these days. It has to be counterbalanced with this kind of goodness. So Halloween is going to be a great night, hopefully for all of us, as we see the littles come to the door. And not just that little, my kids are going out there my eldest is 14. He's still going. He wants his candy. Um, so I hope yours are too. And I hope you, you manage to have some of that happiness in your world this evening. Um, look, there's one other slice of promise in the horrific news that we've been watching out of the Middle East. And that is domestically, it does appear that some are finally waking up to just how out of control our woke college campuses are, how destructive they have been. It seems every hour we get more and more examples of extreme anti-Semitism. The White House now vowing to do something about it, preparing to dispatch Education Secretary Miguel Cardona and Domestic Policy Advisor Neera Tandon to a university to hold a roundtable with Jewish students. Okay, I'll look forward to that. (laughs) They're going to have a roundtable at one university with a few Jews. Okay, that's okay. Terrific. There's a little bit more. They're allowing the FBI now to investigate some of these death threats we're seeing on the campuses, and they're folding in campus security to some of the alerts that are going out when it comes to, you know, threats, terror threats. Um, At some universities, we're seeing like Cornell, they're increasing patrols and security for Jewish students who remain under threat. And the FBI, as I mentioned, is going to look into the threats specifically made there. Meantime, over at Harvard, President Claudine Gay, whose days are numbered. They are numbered. She's just, she's handled this so abominably. She's going, mark my words. She's now launching an advisory board (laughs) to combat anti-Semitism on campus. Anti-Semitism. Acknowledging anti-Semitism has a very long and shameful history at Harvard. She's got her work cut out for her. Just last night, this video was posted showing a man at Harvard Square making some of the most vile remarks we've heard yet. And that's saying something. He's, of course, wearing a face mask because all of these guys who go out there are cowards. You'll see plenty of examples in the coverage of the people pulling down the posters and hiding their faces. They don't want you to know who they are because they're cowards. This is why we need to confront them and not cower. So far, to this moment at least, we don't know who this is, but we'll find out. Watch. Time I see those signs, you know what I do? I rip them down. Really? I love Hamas. I think Hamas. Oh, you love a terrorist Israel organization? Fucking sand Interesting. Harvard Square, everyone. I think Hamas should blow Harvard the fuck Square. out of Israel. I think they're all dirty, dirty animals. That's and not they all deserve to die. That's not anti-Semitism. For real, they should be all exterminated. Thank you. Every single one of them, all and right. their kids, their mothers, their children, everybody. Just like Thank you for proving our Save, point. Have a lovely night. You know, Racist in Harvard. 
Okay, Unabomber, take off your little hood and your mask and just show us your face if you're so bold and you're so brave. Let's see it. Go ahead. I come on camera every day and I say people like you are disgusting. You're an absolute bigot. Why don't you take off your mask and show us who you are? You're such a big man. Of course he's not. Of course he's a petty coward, bigot, and he's afraid because he's probably got some white shoe job lined up so he doesn't want his employers to know how he really feels. Well, we're going to find out. Sorry, that's how this game works. Thanks to these wonderful warriors who are out there with their iPhones filming these losers. It's amazing. The pushback by the people doing the, the videotapes. I love those people. It's amazing. That's the way forward. But we're not done with some of the villains of the day. A lovely gal from George Mason University down in Virginia. Watch as she is confronted by a man as she takes down the posters of the missing hostages. Why'd you tear that flyer down? Oh, I was just looking at it closer. Mm-hmm. What do you know about it? I'm trying to raise awareness for it, and people have been taking down these flyers. Why are you Why are you tearing that down? I just have to put up more. Okay, then go ahead. Well, I'd like it back. Sorry. Excuse me. I put that flyer up. I would like it back. Okay. Why, why do you think this is acceptable? These people are kidnapped. She's ripping it. You know, this guy's not even Israeli. He's Thai. Yeah, that's great. Why is that great? Can I just take a moment? This is a woman. She's probably five foot one. She's petite. She's got the glasses. She happens to be Asian, which is interesting because one of the pictures she's ripping down is of a guy who's Thai. She doesn't give a shit. She doesn't care. But you know what? Not all Nazis, not all Hamas supporters, terror supporters or sympathizers uh, walk around with tiki torches in Charlottesville. Some bigots are petite little Asian women who don't give a shit about kidnapped Israelis. And they have sweet little voices and cute little haircuts. And they're on campus at respected universities and employers. You better listen up. You better pay attention because these losers are applying to a job near you. And if you're not paying attention to stop anti-Semitism on X and other groups like them who are outing these people by name, you are liable to hire one of these people and seat them next to a Jewish person inside your company. Good luck. It's amazing. Time after time, we are seeing women, women who are among those most triggered by the signs of missing hostages, of young babies, of young kids. What has happened to these young women? This, this, this one's on the cusp of girlhood. Where's her empathy? What is in the heads of these young people? Watch here as an educator from Stony Brook's Center for Inclusive Education, all right? Center for Inclusive Education named Callan Zimmerman. She wants us to call her they. It's a no, Callan. Gets her hands on some of the posters. Those are so fucking lame. You are fucking lame. Look what you're doing. Go colonize somewhere else. What a shame. Shame on you. Shame on you. Free Palestine. Go away. You guys are so fuck fucking you. lame. Fuck you. Go fuck away, you. Bitch. Bitch. Fucking hobby fuck you. 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 Fuck you.
Oh, Callan. Uh, d- uh, any idea what they do to people who call themselves they in Gaza? <laughs> According to her now deleted bio, Callan Zimmerman explores, quote, intricacies of material culture and queer experience as fashion freak, educator, and maker. She calls herself a maker. <laughs> of course, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Seems our friends in law enforcement across the pond are even bowing to or part of the teardown mob. Look at this. Met police in the UK spotted removing images of the missing. According to the Express newspaper, they are removing the posters in order to, quote, reduce tensions. Are you kidding me? Can you imagine any other time when police would remove missing persons posters? What, we have to be upset because the lunatics get triggered by what Hamas did? They don't like evidence of it on the wall? They want it ignored, and therefore the police needs to tear down the posters of the missing? What? Look, the only good news, the only good news to come out of this mess in the Middle East is that domestically, we are witnessing the collapse of wokeism. It's happening real time all around us. The woke left has been exposed in spectacular fashion as a complete and total fraud. The very people who harassed us for years about our speech by demanding jobs be taken, SAT scores be thrown out, businesses be shut down for virtually any imagined offense that allegedly dehumanized a minority have all gone silent on the open threats and attacks on Jews. They claimed that hate speech should be banned, even rendered unconstitutional because they said it's violent. They claimed that they needed their own safe spaces where they would be centered and not subjected to triggering ideas and arguments. They told us intent to harm or intent to offend did not matter. All that mattered was the effect of one's words and effect alone would determine whether one's career, academic record or ability to function in polite society could continue. Now. With Jew hatred, actual Jew hatred and scorn, and threats as explicit as kill the Jews all over college campuses, they say absolutely nothing. The BLM crowd, Ibram X. Kendi, Ta-Nehisi Coates, not only fail to condemn these behaviors, many in this woke crowd have participated in them and celebrated the Hamas atrocities against Israel. University presidents allow the Jew hatred to be spewed on the campus quad. Jewish students are being assaulted, scared, encircled, and harassed, threatened, forced to stay inside so that they can live. And these sanctimonious safe space warriors are too chicken shit to lift a finger to protect them. Instead, these same universities that canceled professors for challenging college dogma about race or gender are now suddenly trying to restyle themselves as free speech warriors. We would never punish students for their controversial opinions. That's not who we are. Even if those opinions happen to be, hey, hey, ho, ho, the Jews on campus have got to go. (laughs) They've given up the game. They never meant 
any of it. It was all a ruse to gain control over the rest of us, over the job market, over the politicians, over corporate America that does the hiring. And now we see these are not good-hearted, well-meaning souls embracing the struggle of the minority. They are grifters, frauds, liars, and entitled brats. They have been exposed and they will suffer. Many of us knew who they were before this, but for those that did not, it's over. Any tolerance of these woke warriors will soon be just a distant memory. They have proven themselves to be dastardly. They are dishonest and they have revealed themselves as truly dangerous. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Oh, joy. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash Megan. Joining me now, no better person to discuss it, author of the brand new book, The House of Love and Death, Andrew Claven. He's also host of The Andrew Claven Show. Andrew, welcome back. So what do you think of my optimistic glimmers in the midst of this mess? Well, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I'm a little bit cynical about it. I'm a little bit cynical whether this will actually wake people up. One of the things that has blurred our consciousness over these last 50 and 60 years is the left has taken over our culture and taken over our media and spewed their ideas into the atmosphere, is the idea that the great awakening of the Holocaust, the great evil that arose up in the destruction of European Jewry, was somehow somehow applied to all of us. It was othering. It was bigotry. It was racism. All of those things are true, but it was also Jew hatred, which is unique. Jew hatred is unique in Western culture and maybe unique in the entire world because the Jews are unique. And a Jew is not unique. This Jew or that Jew is just the same as everybody else. But the Jewish people have a unique role in our culture. And this is true whether you believe in God or not. The idea of God the structure of God is part of the structure of the human consciousness. We all have God inside us, whether we believe in him or not. We all have a place where he lives. And in the West, that place was created by, nurtured by, and fashioned by the Jewish people. And the history of the Jewish people has passed on to us through the Bible and has spread to all of us through Jesus's life and death and resurrection. And so we all are Jews at some level. And the one thing about our relationship with God is we don't like him. This is a human universal. God requires something of us that we don't want to give up, our egos. He requires our pleasures. He asks us to be something better than we are. He asks us to be what we were made to be, and we just don't like it. People come up with a million reasons why people don't 
like the Jews. Oh, they're successful. But in Russia, they weren't successful and they persecuted them there. They say, oh, they're off to themselves, you know, but in Germany, they weren't off to themselves. All they wanted to do was assimilate. Now they say, well, it's Israel. Then they've, you know, they've taken over Israel. And if you look at Israel, it's the size of a shoebox in a continent the size of the United States. It, it is not the reason these people have problems. And yet it's the only thing they can focus on, the hatred of them. Jew hatred is a hatred of God. And again, this is true whether you believe in God or not, because he lives inside you, whether you like him or not, and whether you believe in him or not. And I think that until we get rid of and actually effectively speak back to our materialist culture, a culture that tells us we are only stuff, we are just material, we can save ourselves with material, we can take pills to make us happy, we can cut up our bodies if we don't like our gender, we can you know, fix everything in an operating room or in a pharmacy. Until we get rid of that culture and start to understand that no, you know, our bodies are a reference to something higher than themselves. Jew hatred is going to be with us, and it's going to reoccur wherever wherever evil rises. The thing about Jew hatred is it's the devil's flagpole. It doesn't care whether you're right or left. It doesn't care whether you're Democrat, Republican. It doesn't care whether you're black or white. Whenever you see it, you know that evil is afoot. And some people like to say that the Jews are the canary in the coal mine, saying they're the first to go. And that's also true. But the reason it's true is it's because it's the sign that evil has risen. I have to tell you, Megan, eight, nine months ago, I'm talking to my wife about what they call gender affirming care, which is this grave, grave wickedness of butchering the bodies of children in order to turn them into costumes of the opposite sex. And I said, you know, when something like this happens and when the New York Times approves of it and the uh, elites approve of it and our, uh, you know, elite spokesman and government approves of it, Jew hatred is the next thing you're going to see. The killing of Jews is going to be the next thing you're going to see. And the reaction to this atrocity in, um, in Israel is the fruition of that prediction. You know, you were you were pointing out that these people are cowards, which is certainly true. They walk around masked, but they're double cowards because they're tearing down pictures of the truth. These people were kidnapped. They're being held hostages. If you really support them, you should be saying, hooray, they're hostages. Some people are actually saying that. But the people who are tearing them down know that this is evil. They can't not only don't want to show their faces, they can't face what they're supporting. They can't even face what they're saying. So I'm I'm a little bit concerned that this will not go away without a, an absolute catastrophe of wickedness and violence to wake us up. I, I always said, Megan, even as a little kid, I used to say this is a generation of holiday Jews. And what I meant by that was the Holocaust was a wake-up call. It shamed everybody. It shamed people. It forced them to look in the mirror and see that anti-Semitism in themselves, that Jew hatred in themselves. And for 50 years, the Jews were sacrosanct and you couldn't touch them. Now that's faded away, a generation that doesn't remember, a generation that thinks that the Holocaust is a Steven Spielberg movie where everything turns out all right. The, the people who think that Trump is literally Hitler without even knowing what Hitler means. Those people have forgotten and they're right out there again, chanting, kill the Jews. And so, uh, look, I hope there's a way through. God willing, there's a way through. Uh, you know, I think that I have seen things turn around before, but right now we're looking at some serious darkness and anybody, anybody who finds himself on the side of people who burn babies and put them in ovens and you know, rape women on the bodies of their dead loved ones. You know, anyone who finds himself supporting that is past the point, I think, where they're going to look in the mirror and say, oh, I've, I've done something terribly wrong. I've gone well, no, off, I agree off with the you. Re reservation. They're yeah. not salvageable. They're not salvageable. But yeah. we have to, in, you know, in the words of whatever infamous movie line, we have to forge on without them. 
That's that's what's <laughs> awesome about what's happening on the campuses. They're exposing themselves. The Jew hatred was there. You four saw it. I didn't know it was at this at this level, but it's better that we know. I I mean, I have a lot of Jewish friends. I'm sure they they don't like it getting ginned up, right? Because then they're more in danger today than they were yesterday. But net net, it's better to know. If if the person sitting next to you in the cubicle or in the study hall or in your kid's study hall or in your restaurant or your job is a Jew hater, I want to know, even as a non-Jew. So number one, there's been exposure. So that's good. Now we can knowledge is power. And number two, the woke warriors are having a very bad month, a very bad month. And I really think it's going to parlay into a bad year, into the end of their movement. They've been exposed as frauds. Andrew, how can anybody take seriously these, you know, BLM after this, after they didn't condemn what happened to they're supposed to fight for minorities that they 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 fight for the queer minorities and the trans minorities. Why not the Jewish minority? Jews are two percent of Americans. What's what's wrong with them? Why wouldn't you fight for them? This is the same group that it's been talked about many times. We've had Brett Weinstein on the show many times. I've got to go back to what happened at Evergreen College in Washington State, which was sort of it wasn't the beginning of wokeism, but it was one of the most stark examples we got of what was happening on college campuses because of this woke mind virus. These students were so angry. Quick reminder for the audience uh, at this liberal arts college out in Washington State, because they used to have a sick out once a year where the black students voluntarily did not come to campus to prove this is what life would be like for without us. And it was supposed to be a kumbaya moment when they came back. Then one year they said, you know what, we're, we're coming anyway. You whites, you stay home. You stay home this year. And Brett Weinstein, a professor at the time, said, eh, no, that's might be making some people feel uncomfortable. Can't really tell the white students not to come. It's one thing if they choose, but yeah, forcing it, no. He lost his job. They terrorized him. Protests, campus security said, we can't keep you safe. And just to take you back to that, because he said, don't, force whites to stay home. That's what he said. He was fighting back against racism against whites. All hell broke loose on that campus. Just keep this in mind as you understand these same groups of students now, it's not exactly the same people, are like, "Eh, Hamas, it's resistance. What they did was it was resistance with all the beheadings and the murders of civilians. Murders. But words saying don't force whites to stay home, you're you're off. You're out. You're the devil. Here's what happened on Evergreen Campus to remind our audience in SOT 1. Well, whatever SOT you guys numbered it. I'll give you one more. Stand by. I'll give you one more. 
students confronting Brett on campus. There is a difference between debate and dialectic. Debate, wait a second. No, it is. Debate means you are trying to win. Dialectic means you are using disagreement to discover what is true. I am not interested in debate. I am interested only in dialectic, which does mean I listen to you and you listen to me. We don't care what terms you want to speak on. This is not about you. I'm talking about him. On terms of white curve. This is not a discussion. You have lost that one. I did not. I did not. You don't know. Day of absence has been here longer than I have. I have never protested it until the idea. Until. Until. You know No. First of all, first of all, I didn't say. Would you like to hear the answer or not? No. It's unbelievable. They, I mean, harassed him right out of his job because, you know, as under the terms I just outlined. And now these groups in response to Jews being threatened to the point where they can't leave the, the library. They're like, mm, yeah, free speech. We love it. More, more discussion is better for society. You can't shut me down. That would be also, I guess, white supremacy. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, and it's, it's and they hate cancel culture now suddenly. They love that it. it was accountability culture and they don't want to be held accountable for what they're saying. And all of this stuff, all of this racial essentialism, which is also a kind of materialism. I, I would like to ask one of these people, I, although they they haven't, they can't form a thought, they can't respond in any rational way. But I would like at least somebody to ask them: What good has ever come out of racial essentialism? What what good social what social good has ever been created by racism? When this guy Ibram Kendi started his his uh, foundation for anti-racism, which is just racism named, given the opposite name. Why did nobody ever say to him, how is that going to work? How is racism going to solve racism? How is hatred going to solve hatred? You know, it's funny because other kinds of essentialism, gender essentialism, have some good qualities. Women and men should have separate spaces sometimes. Women have different functions. They have different likes and desires. I can totally understand why you would have some form of gender essentialism, which has now been banned. But why would you have racial essentialism? When has that ever worked? When is it? What country has it made better? What what social program has it produced that worked? It it never works. And yet, and yet, the irrationality that has been inculcated in our young people is so strong that they live in this fantasy. The queers for Palestine, my my personal favorite group because I have a morbid sense of humor. The queers for Palestine are absolutely celebrating people who would behead them on the spot. Who have not only said that, who have responded their to their support by saying never. Will a homosexual be able to come into Palestine? The irrationality, the depth of the irrationality, the feminists for Palestine, the feminists who just love, they hate Israel, where women have all the rights in the world, but love these countries where women are second class citizens. The, the absoluteness of the, the ab absolute irrationality that has been drilled into these children's heads should have set people off before. And if it sets people off now, it would be a wonderful thing. It certainly has set off some of the donors, especially some of the Jewish donors. And maybe that kind of uh, blow from the economics uh, sphere will have some effect 
on some of these colleges, places like Yale have so much money, they don't really care at, the, at this point whether the donors show up or not. But still, those are the kinds of practical things that have effects. And look, you know, one of the, the uh, attacks on the Jews in America is that they're powerful. Well, damn right you are. As you damn right they are. And they're talent, they're powerful because they have talent. They're powerful because they have done good things for America. People always say, well, why do the Jews have so much power in Hollywood? Because they invented Hollywood. You invent an industry and you'll have power too. And mm-hmm. I think I, I start, I hope they start to use that power to defend themselves because you're right about this. The the anti-Semitism, the Jew hatred is baked into all this stuff. It's baked into DEI. It's baked into all forms of equity because it means that you have to make the best less. And look, Jewish people succeed in the world for the simple reason that they emphasize family and education. Anyone, any group of people who emphasizes family and education is going to get ahead and do well. You know, that's that's the simple truth. That's why Jews do well in the in America. But if you don't want to do that, if you want to somehow magic equity out of the ground, if you want to somehow ignore the damage that leftist leftist policies have done, for instance, in the black community, and just erase that, then you've got to bring the top down. And that means hating Jews as well. All of this stuff, all of this stuff points to Jew hatred. It always does. It's an evil system. You know, the guy who's right about this is David Horowitz, who's obsessed with it, who points out absolutely rightly, that all of these causes are actually just leftism in disguise. Feminism, gay rights, you know, uh, black rights, all of it. None of it matters if you if you betray them. A black man, Clarence Thomas, who speaks up against leftism is the biggest villain they've got. A gay man who speaks up against leftism, he's no longer a gay guy. He's hated Jews, anybody who speaks up against leftism. It's all about the power. It's all about the materialism. It's all about collecting power in one place so that the human mind can magically bring about a fair and equal society that's never existed on earth before. The idea that freedom, individual freedom is what raises raises us up, which is a strictly Western and now Judeo-Christian idea, is the enemy. That's what they're after. They do not want you to be making decisions for yourself. They haven't wanted that since Dewey and Woodrow Wilson. They've been saying it out loud that you don't need freedom. What you need is a job. What you need is the charity that our government gives you. All of these things are a mask for that. They're all a mask for uh, the power-hungry left, which believes that with enough power, it can create paradise and constantly uh produces hell instead. So, you know, I I hope you're right, Megan. You're right that they're exposed. You're right that some people are going to see the exposure. Let's just hope that the people who see the exposure are powerful enough, well-placed enough, and courageous enough to fight back against it, because that's the only thing that's going to work. They are not going to give this up by themselves because they don't see themselves anymore because they're irrational. So it's going to take force to get them to do it. I hope it's economic force. I hope it's legal force. I hope it's government force. But if that doesn't happen, these guys are never going to stop. I, I just think they may not be as explicit as some of these Jewish donors have been to the big universities, but quietly they are going to start realizing and acting upon the realization that wokeism is dangerous. It, it, you know, it's the old first they came for the Jews. They're going to come for everyone. They're going to yeah. th- this woke mob is going to come for everyone. They only see life in terms of oppressor versus oppressed. And what makes you an oppressor is usually beyond your control. You you happen to have white skin. You happen to be Israeli. You happen to be a Jewish person, whatever. We could go down the list, but um, the people are starting to get it. It's just too obvious, obvious for them not. Given the hysterics we've witnessed, 
it's right on the heels of three years of hysterics and three years is, you know, being charitable. I'm just talking about post George Floyd, how things have exploded. They were woke and annoying prior to that, but it's just gotten out of hand over the past three years or so. You know, I'm well, thinking about it today, Andrew, because, and, and I know this one must be personal to you because we, we both know you sent a wonderful son named Spencer Clavin to Yale and, um, he's brilliant, but he's brilliant because of you and because of him, not because of <laughs> Yale. Anyway. Um, so Spencer went to Yale and Yale is at the epicenter of all this Yale, Harvard, UPenn, Cornell, um, and Yale is in the news today for a couple of reasons. Okay, so I want to talk about this, this, the campus newspaper. But what's interesting about it is we're on, it's Halloween 2023. And Yale was in the news a few years back, same as Evergreen, for this big campus dust up about Halloween costumes. And again, like the Evergreen thing, it was like a, I don't know if you can say canary in the coal mine because Miners were already going into the mine and dying. You know, it's like it was beyond the canary phase when Brett Weinstein had that thing on Evergreen and when this happened at Yale. But it was closer to the beginning of wokeism and its tidal wave than we are now, where I think we're cresting at the end of this wave. And um, Yale, just this week or last week, posted at first uh, a piece in their newspaper and the question being raised was, is Yaleys for Palestine a hate group? And a sophomore named Sahar Tartak posted a long piece. She was writing about the atrocities and um, just how awful everything was happening over in, um, in the Middle East, writing, you can imagine my horror to find that Yaleys for Palestine decided the murderous the murderers are absolved of their responsibility in an Instagram post that holds, quote, the Israeli Zionist regime responsible for the unfolding violence. And then she went on to say, do you know who I hold responsible? The men with guns and axes who killed the children and abducted the grandmothers. She's making the point that, you know, Hamas are terrorists and not to be condoned in any way. She goes through some of the atrocities. Well, then they added an editor's note to Sahar Tartak's piece from the Yale paper. Editor's note, correction, October 25, colon. This column has been edited to remove unsubstantiated claims that Hamas raped women and beheaded men. My God. Andrew, this actually got the two people who were the editor-in-chief. I think they were both either editor-in-chief or up there back in 2001, 2002 of the Yale Daily News to respond, saying, quote, it defies belief that this editorial board would characterize claims of rape during the Hamas attack as unsubstantiated in the face of ample substantiation in major news outlet. And it shocks the conscience that a generation of students who implore us to believe women who allege rape is suddenly willing to disbelieve the evidence of their own eyes when the women raped are Israeli. The hypocrisy is breathtaking. We hope the editorial board will take swift action to rectify this mistake. Chris, Michael, Michelle, and Alyssa Friedland. And you could say all the same about the beheading, too. I witnessed with my own eyes. They took it down on X, but I saw with my own eyes a, a Thai man, a man of Thai descent who was there, and he was writhing on the ground. No, we're not going to show it. It's just too, we've had too much dark. I can't show it. Um, and they took a spade, and they hacked away at his neck, trying to chop his head off. Uh, and then we were told later that they succeeded. Uh, I just, 
that's just one. We could go down the list. There's been many firsthand testimonials about the beheadings, but the nerve of this paper. So that's Yale. And to go back to the, the Halloween controversy, again, like we ignore these things at our peril. Like we look at this and shrug our shoulders and say, ah, it's not really a thing. Don't worry about it. Who cares? At our own peril. Hold on. What did I do with the page? Yeah. Nicholas Christakis. He was a Yale professor and he reacted to this ridiculous editorial note, Andrew, saying, are the hostage taking murder of children in their beds, burning of people alive and parading of nude captive women in the street also unsubstantiated? He gets it because he was the professor who, along with his wife, was involved in this 2015 controversy about Halloween costumes, Halloween costumes. He had to fight the screaming mob that was pissed off because he pushed back on Yale mandates on what could and could not be worn. And he said, I think the students of Yale can be trusted to make their own decisions about Halloween costumes, which resulted in a now infamous several, I think, two hour long exchange on campus with the students screaming at him. For his insensitivity, we have some of it in SOT 22. The exception is because other people have rights too, not just walk, walk away. I do not. Be quiet. It's your job to create a place of comfort and home for the students that live in Silliman. You have not done that. By sending out that email, that goes against your position as master. Do you understand that? Then no, I stop. don't agree with that. Then, then why the fuck did you accept the position? Because what I have the a fuck? You. I have a different vision. You should step down. If that is what you think about being a tenacity, you should step down. It is not about creating an intellectual space. It's about creating a home here. You are not doing that. You're supposed You're to be an advocate. That. You should not sleep at night. We're out. We're out. You're We're disgusting. Out. Amazing. Disgusting, they called him. And these same campuses now can't bring themselves to acknowledge beheadings, rapes, or even in the, the appropriate terms to condemn Hamas's atrocities. You know, you know, one of the things I think we all have to understand about cancel culture, about woke culture, about its predecessor, political correctness, about shutdown culture, which you just showed an example of, is that they're all the same thing. They're all about, they're all, they all mean the same thing. They mean shut up. Don't say it. You can't talk about abortion because you don't have a womb. You can't talk about black people because you're white. You can't talk about this because you're that. Whatever it is, it always translates to shut up. And the reason you have to shut up is because nothing they say is true. Everything they say is a fantasy created to acquire power, to create the, the idea that they are somehow going to create heaven on earth. Everything they say is about shutting you up. That's why suddenly cancel culture doesn't exist because they don't want to shut themselves up. It's always, there's always this hypocrisy. And it's worked because people don't like to be despised. People don't like to lose their footing on social media. People don't want to be called down to HR and said they're not and told they're not using the right pronoun. Women on the street can't even answer the question what a woman is because they're afraid. And the fear is the point. The shut up is the point. Nothing else is the point. And the reason is they haven't got the goods. They are not talking about reality. They can't prove their points. You scream at someone like that, which by the way, I think should be an expulsion offense. You should be tossed out of school instantly for saying that. You should have to sign a document saying you'll be tossed out if you ever speak to an adult in that fashion. 
But the whole point of it is, is silence. The whole point of it is silence because otherwise they have to face themselves. The same reason they tear down the posters of kidnapped people. Do not show the reality. The same reason they overturn, uh, you know, uh, pictures of abortions, you know, throw them away and burn them because you cannot look at what it is. You're not allowed to speak the truth. You're not allowed to see the truth. Everything is about that. And the reason we have had so much difficulty on our side, the people who just want to discuss things and talk about things, that reasonable tone of voice, you have your say and I have my say, it's a dialectic and all this stuff. All of that is against what they want. It's against what they believe. The First Amendment is against what they believe. Everything about hate speech, same thing. Shut up, shut up, shut up. And it's always for this. You only tell people to shut up for the same reasons because you haven't got an argument. The only reason you don't have to censor people if you're speaking the truth. You have to censor people when they're speaking the truth and you're not. And that is that is always true. You know, when you look back in history, when are the censors the good guys? You know, and on YouTube, they demonetize you if you say a man can't become a woman. Why? Because a man can become a woman? No, because you're speaking the truth and they don't want that to be the truth. When do these people in the long run of history ever become the good guys? Never. And that's because the truth does will out over time. It's always, but it always costs you. It always costs you. And it, and I think that if we're not willing to pay that price, we are lost. If people are not willing to take the, the hits, you know, one of the, one of the positive things I see as you say, now they're being exposed. I, I thought it was a positive thing when parents started showing up at PTA meetings and at school board meetings because they found out what teachers were teaching their kids about sex and about sexuality and all the queering the kids and all that. I thought that was a, a wonderful thing because parents will sacrifice to protect their children. But a lot of people don't want to sacrifice if it means losing their jobs because their children need them to have jobs. They don't want to sacrifice if it means losing their social media connection, especially if they're young, because that's where their self-esteem and prestige comes from. So they've made it very costly to speak the truth. And that is against the American way, which is obviously a way where everybody gets to speak the truth and we argue it out. And over the course of about 10 years, we come to a decision on where we want to go. That's the system that's been broken. And if you're right, and I hope to God you're right, if you're right, if this is the moment when people start to say, oh, I get it, we can't be silent. Oh, I get it, we have to stand up. Oh, I get it, they're coming after me next. If it's that point, then it is, then something good will come out of this terrible, terrible moment in Israel, which would be, uh, you know, very close to a miracle, but I've seen them before and it can happen again. I mm -hmm. do think this is what we have to recover. We have to recover that commitment to truth. Everything that's going on is about a lot. You know, even, even when you see, Megan, a mass shooting like the one in Maine, and everybody says, well, why didn't the police do anything? They can't do anything because there was a lie back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that madness was a social construct. So we had to close down all the institutions and we we're going to move everybody into halfway houses and everything was going to be neighborhood care is going to be great. That lie is now coming home to roost as crazy people go out and shoot people. All of these lies, there's death at the end of every lie, Megan. There's death at the end of every lie. And these people have been lying and lying and lying and silencing us through one mean or means or another. And I think this is, if this is the turning point, then that'll be a blessing that comes out of a curse. It really will, because without the truth, we're dead. Without the truth, you can't be free. Without the truth, you can't be sane. Without the truth, you can't live. And that's the, this, the culture that they've created because they are people of the lie. The lie is their socialist uh, dream of utopia that's just not going to come true. Whether it is a turning point is up to us. It's up to all of us. It must be. It has to be. Logic, reason, commitment to truth, and honor require it. Andrew Claven stays with us for the full show today. So much to get to. So happy to have him back again.
Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Oh, joy. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private, free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash Megan. Does President Biden think the anti-Israel protesters in this country are extremists? What I can say is what we've been very clear about this. When it comes to anti-Semitism, there is no place. We have to make sure that we speak against it very loud uh, and be uh, and be very clear about that. Remember, what the president decided to, when the president decided to run for president is what he saw in Charlottesville in 2017. Welcome back to the Megyn Kelly Show. My guest today is Andrew Clavin. You see, so it's very clear that the Charlottesville people with their tiki torches and statements about you will not replace us, definitely extremists, easy to see. But the people out there chanting only one solution and kill the Jews, well, it's complicated. We're not going to use the extremist word for them. Yeah, well, one of the things about the left is, you know, we have these extremists on the right. There are extremists everywhere. Our extremists are guys, crazy guys. When they hold a national conference, like 200 of them show up. And yet these are the guys that the FBI is busy hunting down. Their extremists are the Speaker of the House, uh, the president, you know, their, their extremists are the, some of the most powerful people in the country. The people spewing nonsense at the New York Times, which has been an insane ride watching this, the New York Times after October 7th. They're actually blaming the Jews for being killed. These are the, these are the extremists of the left. So they, they've actually moved the Overton window so far to the left that maybe you're just an extremist for thinking that people should be free or that the Constitution was a good idea or that maybe there should be you know a conflict between the different facets of government so that they don't get too powerful. All of those things are extreme ideas. But the idea that men can magically change their sex or that, you know, you can abort a child five minutes, five seconds before birth. Uh, th those are not extreme ideas. So th these are words, again, that get thrown away, thrown around simply to silence people. This administration, I have to say, this administration has been as wicked in that regard as I've ever seen. The demonizing mm -hmm. of parents standing up for their children, the setting the FBI on people, the n knocking down doors at three o'clock in the morning because somebody staged a protest outside an abortion mill. Uh, you know, this this administration has been as radical as it's possible to be. And the idea of it was that they were going to put the face of Lunch Bucket Joe, the kind of moderate, old fashioned Democrat in front of it. And they were going to be able to do all these things. I, you know, it, obviously, Biden, I mean, Kamala Harris has assured us that he's still alive, which is nice to know, but just barely. So obviously, he's not the guy running things. But whoever is running things, our government, these are real radicals, real extremists. And the fact that the people who follow them and vote for them and support them on our college campus campuses are shouting, kill the Jews and Palestine, uh, you know, must be free is not should not be surprising. 
they can't really call them extremists because they're them. They're who they are. And our mm. extremists are on the comment sections of right wing web, you know, websites. That's it. Sitting, sitting that, in their that's parents. That's exactly bathroom. it. Rich Lowry was making this point in a National Review article I read today, saying these alt-right extremists, they're marginalized. They exist, but they're marginalized. They're mocked. They don't have real influence. They're extremists on the left. They're college professors, college presidents. They're in prime positions throughout the administration. Even the State Department had an internal struggle session with tears over us not being more supportive of Hamas and the Palestinians after they launched this terror attack. It's insane. They have real power. And that's why she won't she won't use the E word on any of these people, because it would offend too many of her favorites over on the left. Yeah. And all you have to do, I mean, first of all, if if 800 or 8000 conservatives show up and one guy on the end of the row has a swastika, that's the guy that the press focuses on. Nick Fuentes, they talk about Nick Fuentes endlessly as clown who hates Jews and hates blacks. You know, he's somebody that most of I, I know virtually everybody on the right. I'm sure you do, too. They hate this guy. They just gives everybody a bad name. But but their guys, the things that their people say, the anti-whiteness, which is just racism straight up. I mean, it is just this hatred of people for the color of their skin, this holding people responsible for the actions of the dead. This is stuff they do with the, in the highest places in the halls of power. And, and yet, and yet, that's not extremist. It, it's been going on. This has been going on for a long time. You know, it, it always made me laugh when they called themselves the resistance. They own Hollywood. They own the news media. They own the government. They own the, the deep state. They own the academy. What were they resisting? What were, who were they resisting? They were resisting us. Yeah. They were resisting the little guy, the normal guy. And and one of the reasons they hate, they, you know, there are plenty of reasons to dislike Donald Trump, but the reason they hate him is because he speaks up for that guy. He speaks up for that guy who's been told for 60 years that his country stinks, his religion stinks, his way of life stinks, his marriage stinks. This is stuff we've been hearing from the richest, most powerful people in the country who stand in front of microphones and broadcast to millions of people and tell us or tell the ordinary guy that he stinks. Trump stands up for that. And it's never, yeah. no, never and, and not just that, he stinks, to ask why but that he's an extremist, that, that he's an extremist. That's what we've been hearing out of this administration. Anybody who votes for Trump or is part of MAGA, you're an extremist, an ultra a MAGA extremist. Yeah. But these people, they don't get the word because they're of the left. All right, stand by. There's so much more to get to with Andrew Clavin, author of The House of Love and Death, which we will get to in our next hour. Stand by as we take a quick break. Come right back. Andrew Clavin the full two hours. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Oh joy. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private, free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash Megan. My guest today is Andrew Clavin. He's author of the brand new book, The House of Love and Death. 
He is also the host of The Andrew Clavin Show. And if you want to hear a ton more about Andrew, his writing process, he's, I mean, that's really how he came to fame as a star writer, screenwriter for lots of big movies that you'd know. Um, you can tune into my husband's pod- podcast today. Doug Brunt's dedicated hosts Andrew Clavin. He's like spending his entire day with the Kelly Brunt family. It's an honor, sir. But while I have you here, can you tell us about the book? It's it's fiction. It's part of a mystery series that you've been doing. Yes, the Cameron Winter mystery series. This one has been uh, an Amazon editor pick for the month, and it's got a starred review in Publishers Weekly. I'm really, I think it's one of the best books I ever wrote, and I'm really excited about the the whole series. Basically, you know, in the 2000s, I started watching all what was called the second golden age of TV. And I noticed that all it was were antiheroes, the Sopranos, uh, Breaking Bad, The Shield, one bad guy after another. And the funny thing was, is I'd been writing characters like that for 10 years, all through the 90s. I wrote a character in True Crime. It was just like that. It was played by Clint Eastwood in the movies. And I started to think, you know, okay, I get this. We've done this. It's really interesting. How do you get from being an anti-hero back to being a hero? How do you get to a, a form of manhood that is actually something better than the society around you, especially when the society is as dark and as uh, corrupt as ours is right now? And so the Cameron Winton series is about a guy who's been a killer. He's been a bad guy, and he's now trying to find a way back to being a good guy. And uh, and he's doing it in a society that's falling apart. And the House of Love and Death is about a, a family that's wiped out. And he goes to investigate this and he finds an entire community that has become corrupt. It's corrupt not only within itself, it's corrupt from the top down. Things that the president is doing are corrupting the society around it. And, and so he's a guy who's just trying to find forgiveness for what he's done in the past and also a way forward into the future. And I think it answers a lot of, or at least explores a lot of interesting questions that I think are facing men, but also facing women in this moment. I noticed one of the things I've noticed about it is almost all the characters except for Cameron Winter are women. And that's an interesting part of it because I think he's trying to find out what it means to be a man who can find love as well as find the truth. So it's been it's been really exciting to write, and I'm really happy about the response so far. The first two books in the series were USA Today bestseller, and I'm depending on you, Megan, to make this one a New York Times bestseller just because I want to see the New York Times eat it. Yes, I want to see the New York Times eat it too. And it's a starred <laughs> review, which is hard to get from Publishers Weekly. I'm yeah. very proud of you. That's excellent. Um, my own husband got one on his book, The Mysterious Case of Rudolph Diesel. Which was he came great, on to promote it. And actually wound up on the New York Times bestseller list as well. It's a bestseller right now. But, you know, screw the New York Times. Because, I mean, after they give you your spot that you've earned on the list, we'll really go after them. But the point is, they're not really the market maker that they once were. Because, you know, you come on shows like this, you go on your own show, you have your own huge audience. There's just a wonderful way of reaching readers today that didn't exist even 10 years ago, right? It's wonderful. And it's, we, it's, we a, just, it's a new world. We don't yeah. need them anymore. But we are facing incredible things in the publishing industry. The the idea of, that you cannot any longer write a story that's about a white person, the idea that European values have to be uh, denigrated. You would be shocked at some of the editorial comments I've gotten. And I don't, I, these books are not political per se. They take place in, this, in the world that I see and in this culture that I see. But I've gotten editorial comments from young editors like, you cannot describe a character as coffee colored because. Uh, slaves used to have to pick coffee and you just have to cross these comments out, but it's a lot of work. You know, you have to spend a lot of time erasing this nonsense, this woke nonsense that is just infiltrating everything. And the fact that even in this, where there's a minor comment about 
transgenderism. Even that I had to defend because I just said, this is what's happening in our society. I'm not making comments about it. I'm not editorializing. I'm just trying to make tell stories about the world we're actually living in instead of the world that Netflix says we're living in, instead of the world that the movies tell us we're living in. I want to write about the actual world we're living in, and it's gotten harder and harder. So you're right, Megan. I, it's wonderful. It is wonderful that we now have a media that can promote our own works. And what we also need is we need review venues, we need awards, we need, you know, all the infrastructure of culture so that they don't own every segment of the arts. It's really important. Yes, 100%. And that's why that's, listen, Andrew is legitimately one of the greatest writers we have. But on top of that, you want to support him, support his work, support his ability to make a living doing commentary like you're hearing today. And so it's all part of it. I view this as yet another reason to support writers like you. The, the House of Love and Death. I like the name too. Andrew Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. Please support him and go out and buy this book. And, and by the way, we're like a stone's throw away from the holidays, so it would make a great gift as well. And while you're there, get The Mysterious Case of Rudolph Diesel by Doug Brunt, because he would also really love your support. <laughs> um, okay. So one of the things that those people in The Mysterious House, house of uh, or the House of Lo- Love and Death might like is a little faith in their life. It might've made a difference. It could have helped um, you know, the bad guy or the, those who actually got hurt. And that in today's leftist society is also something of scorn. Uh, we saw an incredible reaction to the new house speaker today, which was, it was very pitchforky. I have to say it was a pitchforky reaction to the new house speaker. Hold on a second. I'll find his name here somewhere. It's, uh, uh it's Mike Johnson. No, I'm only, I'm only kidding. My team is not, I know his name. I'm making a joke. Because nobody really knew who Mike Johnson was before he became speaker. And we all know he came, became speaker after this nasty house fight. But he's speaker now. And um, of all the things you could go after him, I've heard them. They've gone after him because he backed Trump's electoral challenges. A lot of Democrats filed those same challenges when they didn't like the electoral results. But, you know, when it's Trump, it's too insurrectiony. And uh, OK, but that's fine. You can criticize him for that. Instead, Jen Psaki decided, you know what his real problem is? That he's faithful. He's a person of faith. He's a Christian. Listen to her. The Bible doesn't just inform his worldview. It is his worldview. In fact, during his first speech in his new job, Johnson suggested that his election as speaker was an act of God. Talk about a bit of a humble brag there. I would love to know. What passage in the Bible told Johnson to become one of the most important architects behind Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election? Which passage? Was it God whispering in his ear to ignore the Constitution? He clearly envisions a country that's less democratic and less tolerant. The problem with Johnson isn't at all his faith. But when those beliefs encroach on the rights of others, that's when it becomes dangerous. She's so bad. I have to say, like, her delivery is terrible. Her attempt to be snarky fails. She's just too wooden. She can't pull it off. She's trying to. I don't know if she wrote that script or somebody wrote it for her, but she doesn't deliver it like it's her own. It was a fail on many levels, like her show, which has no viewers whatsoever. I think it's just you and me, Andrew. We're the only ones. (laughs) And now my audience has gotten some exposure, but they're not going over to tune in, Jen. Sorry. Uh, The nerve. The nerve. Oh, was it God whispering in his ear to to be an insurrectionist? Uh, what do you make of it? 
Well, first of all, I have to say, uh, you, like everybody, when they appointed Mike Johnson speaker, I was like, who the hell is this guy? And I started looking him up. While I'm researching him, I suddenly realized that at the first Trump prayer breakfast, I was sitting next to him and we had oh. what must have been a 20 minute conversation. He had just been elected to Congress. And I just making conversation at the breakfast table, I said, you know, so what do you think you can accomplish? We had a very long conversation. He was earnest. He was intelligent. He understood the workings of the House, which is the most important thing about the speaker, by the way. It's really not his opinions, his personal opinions, because he only has one vote like everybody. It's really whether he understands how to uh, maneuver through the House politics, which is very difficult to do. And he really seemed to know that stuff. So I was very impressed with him. The fact that they hate his religion is uproariously funny. I mean, the New York Times wrote a story about it and then published readers' letters about it. And if you ever read the letters in the New York Times, they are no more allowed to disagree with leftism than the writers in the New York Times. So you only get letters on one side. It's not a selection of people who say, you know, I kind of like his faith. No, it's just like, this is the end of the world that he has, believes in God. This this is comical, but it's so normal on the left. You know, when when Mel Gibson brought out The Passion of the Christ, do you remember the absolute firestorm about the violence? Oh, it's so violent. It's so terrible. So when has a movie ever been condemned for violence on the left? When has it ever, what bloodshed has ever been condemned before? When the C.S. Lewis Narnia movies came out about, uh, you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the New Yorker, so help me God, off one reference in one of C.S. Lewis's letters about whipping, which is a typical British sexual fascination, they called him a sexual pervert. I actually wrote to the guy and said, when on earth have you ever called anybody anywhere a sexual pervert before, no matter what they were doing? Never. My Suddenly God, never. these things become bad if you believe in God. Suddenly, I mean, God is the enemy of all they believe in. Because he says that we're not an accident, life is not an accident, our conscience is real, our, our bodies are real, our gender is real, all of those things that they are trying to destroy, and that we cannot finally decide with alone how to make the world a better place. It just doesn't work that way. And so they just absolutely panic. He's a man of faith. He's absolutely right that the Bible does say that our, the authorities are appointed uh, by God and chosen by God. He doesn't say that the authorities are always right or that you can't stand up to the authorities. Just about everybody in the Bible in the New Testament was killed by the authorities because they stood up for them, because they stood up for their faith. So he knows all that. But he is also pointing out that the, the ideas that fashioned American society and British society are what they call politely Judeo-Christian ideas. They are ideas that come to us through the Gospels by way of the Old Testament. And again, as we started at the beginning, that's why people hate the Jews so much, because those ideas are ideas that constrain you. They constrain your ego. They constrain your uh, powers. And they're the ideas that created this notion that people are individuals who should be free. And when, when the Founders said that we are all created equal. They didn't obviously mean that I was as good a basketball player as LeBron James. I wish they didn't mean that. What they did mean is that we are all equal in our right to make our own lives, to make decisions about our own lives and our right not to be uh, governed over by random people who think that they know better than we do. And so that's what you know, Mike Johnson believes. That's that's basically his belief system. And he believes he's backed up by the Bible. And the fact is, without some kind of faith in, uh, you know, that that the human being is not an accident. You don't have that faith in freedom. That's why the left is so glad to get rid of it. That's why the left is so glad to tell us to shut up, because they don't have that faith, because everything about leftism is materialist. And so I, I think it, it is kind of comical 
the the panic that God uh, creates on the left, the minute they hear about him, the minute they think that he might have slipped into some of our entertainment, the, the minute they think that, uh, oh, oh my goodness, somebody might actually have faith and not just be pounding the Bible, but might actually believe, they just throw their aprons over the face and run screaming out of the kitchen. It is, it's wonderful to behold, and I love the fact that he's giving it to them both barrels, and I'm impressed so far. I hope he, he goes forward. You know, he's not going to give, look, the Speaker of the House, no matter what people on the far right think, he can't give the right everything they want. He's got a maneuver. He's got a compromise. He's got a deal. That's what the job entails. But the fact that he's speaking so clearly about who he is and what he believes and where he comes from and where his values come from, it's very encouraging. Yeah. You raise a good point, though. I mean, his big thing is to understand how the House operates, how to count and how to <laughs> raise money. I mean, his, yep. his vote isn't worth any more just because he's speaker. But she decides to use his nomination, his new position, I should say, it, as an excuse to go back through Oh, his position in the early 2000s in which he opposed same-sex marriage, as did Barack Obama, as did Joe Biden, the boss that she works for. I mean, in the early 2000s, are we really going to go back that far? She's mad that he worked for Alliance Defending Freedom. That's the, one of the greatest legal groups we have in America right now. She points out, oh, it was designated a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. <laughs> so was Ben Carson. Literally, that, that, that's what they said of Ben, of ben Carson, too, is he he's also he hates it. OK, whatever. They've been discredited by everybody. Nobody cites the Southern Poverty Law Center other than Jen Psaki for you and for me, her two viewers. Um, and we confess we didn't actually watch the show and that we only watched the one soundbite. And that's why she's failing um, in any event. There's nothing wrong with this guy's Christian faith. And she would never do this to a Muslim, a Muslim who said, you know, I believe in the Quran. That's what I follow. I think she'd go through the Quran and start to pour apart what it actually says and whether this person is an extremist and what strain of Islam is this person following, right? Is it more fundamentalist as she uses it? Is it more of an Islamist who actually does believe in potentially honor killings? I await Jen Psaki's piece on that as she takes a deep dive into Rashida Tlaib. You know, the Atlantic Monthly wrote a piece saying that some distant relative of his owned slaves or something, which is probably true of every single person on earth. (laughs) But, But did you know this? Did you know that he has an adopted son who's black? No, I didn't know that. I, I I had no idea. I read it in a column in the Wall Street Journal this morning. No one has mentioned it. No one has said a word about it. It is just amazing. The Atlantic runs a piece saying that some distant relative of his held slaves, but no one has mentioned that he has an adopted kid who's black. He, he made a comment about the systemic or he, he called a systematic racism in the country. And I thought, well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from his experience of having a black kid my kid. But the fact that this has been suppressed and nobody's talking about it, I love it. I just, you you can't make this stuff up. You cannot make the dishonesty and the hypocrisy of the leftist media up because they just are, they're like satires of themselves. They're like the Babylon Bee of themselves. Just the fact that he's not even putting that out there and touting it in his interviews inures to his benefit. Because what you see is now all these Hollywood celebrities who want to be on the cover of People magazine or who want to earn I don't know, snaps or thumbs up or viewers putting their kids up. All three of my kids are trans. Here's a picture of them. Here, look at my two trans kids. And I'm ambiguous. I'm queer. I'm whatever. (laughs) Right. They all they would and they would never, never adopt a child of color and not make sure you knew about it ever, ever. Right. So it's like good for him. I remember working with my lawyer who I love. He's a killer. He's amazing. Brian Friedman for uh, three years before I found out that he too has a black son. I did not know. He, he, they don't, people who just 
are loving, kind, and non-bigoted don't run around telling you about the non-bigoted things they've done, right? It's only these crazy agenda-driven leftists who want you to know, I've got a trans kid, and I've got a black kid, and I've got a kid in a wheelchair, and I'm going <laughs> to, I'm becoming a lesbian soon. <laughs> well, they, they, they have abandoned lot. this idea of colorblindness, which is the only good idea. I mean, it's the only way to do it is to just not do race. You know, we, we there may be differences between us. Who cares? I mean, at this point, really, who cares? And I just think that's the only answer to this is I just, you just don't do race. It's like it's like whatever your feelings, the, the left wants to condemn you for some inner feeling you have, but it's like adultery. You don't do adultery. You may lust after somebody. You may have a moment where you think that would be a good idea, but you don't do it. You don't do it because it's wrong. And it's the same thing with race. You don't do race. And I don't understand how that perfectly good idea, that perfectly manageable idea, which only makes things better and actually can, has, can produce social good, why that's the one idea you're no longer allowed to have. But it, but you're absolutely right, by the way. It's it's to his credit that he hasn't talked about it, but it also is is absolutely damning of the left that they don't report it. Yeah, exactly right. Um, okay, so speaking of people who are on the leftist train, we talked earlier about how the BLM activists have absolutely the worst representation. They've made very clear that they're very pro-Hamas, that they are very anti-family, um, that they're very pro destruction of the nuclear family and any sort of hetero patriarchy normality. Uh, and then you've got the trans activists who are the absolute worst, the the absolute worst bullies. I, a reminder that these are men. These are 99% of these are men posing as women who are trying to tell women that they have a right to come into our spaces. Remember that when you're fighting these fights, ladies and gentlemen, they're men posing as women, telling women they have a right to come into our spaces. They don't. And we need to fight. I've said it many times. I say it now more than ever. So there was this man running around in ridiculous outfits, which for him are a costume for an actual woman. We might call them clothing um, and trying to insist that waitstaff. And I will note for the leftists uh, who pay attention to this clip, almost all of them in this clip happen to be people of color. They appear to be immigrants. Some of them have accents. This is a white man who the left is supposed to hate. But as soon as he says he's a white woman, they hate him a little less. And then they hate him not at all because he's just trans. He's a fake woman. They love them more than anything. And trying to embarrass them for not referring to him with his deep voice as she or her. Look at this. Looks like uh, he's having a uh, nice feast. She, all she, she, her. Yeah, it's okay. I use she, her pronouns. I'm not sir. Oh, yeah, like it, it. It's like a knife in the heart. Yeah. The so sweet water starts at. Okay. Not. I mean, not, I, I'm so sorry. I apologize. I was wondering if there's a manager I could talk to about something that happened. Yeah, I, I was called sir. Oh, okay. It just really sucks every time it happens. Did you call me sir? I, I just want to tell you that the person who gave me this called me sir. <laughs> called me sir. Oh. Thank you so much. No. Oh, I'm. Yeah. Thank you. I'm not a sir. I, I feel like I need to tell him. <laughs> I know you didn't mean it, but I'm not a sir. I'm, so sorry. I'm not sir. Not sir. Not sir. Andrew, I can't. I'm sorry. I was like, if you want to, if you want to actually try so hard to look like me, like a woman, that you actually managed to fool me into thinking you are a woman and I mistakenly call you she, her, or ma'am because you fooled me, fine. 
You, you got one on me. You did. You're not fooling anyone, sir. You're not fooling anyone. And we don't have the obligation to go along with your delusion. It's it's the same thing, right? It's shut up, shut up again. You know, you're at, you absolutely have to be able to uh, keep people silent if you're going to live in a fantasy. I, I have to say the thing about this fantasy, I wish, you know, you don't want to pick on actual transgender people. I think there are a few of them who are actual uh, people. Just in the same way, I don't want to pick on gay people, but gay activists and transgender activists are some of the worst people in the country. They are really offensive and they will travel miles and miles to hunt down anybody who wants to tell the truth or who opposes them. And I just think that, especially with this, which is, it's so, and the, the hatred of women that is baked into this is so deep and so offensive that I think I think it is important to speak out about it, even though you may risk offending some people who are actually innocents. Because I think, you know, to be a woman is a primary thing. When people say, well, define a woman, it's hard to do just like it's hard to define good and evil because it's a primary thing. You know it when you see it. I know what a woman yes. is with every fiber of my being. You don't have to, I don't have to be able to define it. It's axiomatic that some people are men and some people are women. Some people are gay men, maybe some people are gay women, but they're still men and women. And it's an important difference. And not only is it an important difference, it is the difference between people. That is the only central difference between people. And the, the desperate attempts to eradicate one sex, because you don't see it going in the other direction. All of the hatred focused on men is really focused on getting men to act less like men so women so women can act more like men. It's all about eliminating women. And the, I think people hate women because women ground them to the earth. They create consequences for having sex. They create emotional consequences for the body. They, they do all the things that make life actually worth living, but also more, uh, you know, cause you to be more responsible, require you to be more responsible to life and to your actions. And I think they're just trying to eradicate an entire gender. And I don't think, I think that speaking up about it and not letting people like Richard, AKA Rachel Levine, you know, de demand that we lie with every word that we speak, demand that we use the pronoun that he wants us to use. I think it's important. You know, I, I, I know that there's a risk of being mean, but sometimes the truth is mean. You know, sometimes you just got to tell the truth. And guys like this mm -hmm. are just a total pain in the neck. You know, they really have to be. Well, you know what's amazing? Down. So first of all, this guy obviously brought like a second person there to film all encounters with wait staff because it's somebody else doing the filming from the look of it. And so he was trying to lay a trap to get these unknowing wait staff. And then for the listening audience, he's wearing absolutely absurd costumes, <laughs> like a little tied shirt tied right underneath, you know, the where a woman's breasts would be, um, exposed midriff, which is very obviously all male. I mean, midriff on a male looks very different than that of a female. And it's so like, he's trying to dress like a woman, but everything about him oozes male. I won't say manly, but, but male, you can tell. And, and, and then his voice is very, very male. It's very obvious that it's a man. So this, this made me think of a piece that Kelly J. Keene recommended to me. Uh, it's, it, it's entitled pronouns are Rohypnol and it was put on medium and it was taken down. It was put back up, it was taken down again. It's like hard to get this piece absurdly and everyone should Google it and read it. Do it. I love, I listen, I love voice stream. What I do is I Google these pieces. If they're long, I download them to voice stream. You can either save it for later. Or you can just hit play and then the voice stream will read you the article. You can do your makeup. You can drive your car, whatever you read you, your favorite articles that you might not want to waste your I don't know. I get dry eyes, so I don't want to read too much. Um, so pronouns are rehypnol. 
gets to this very point, Andrew, which is it's like if they force you to say while you're looking at this man, you know, is a man, you could see his man belly. You can see his man limbs. You can hear his man voice. And these waiters aren't thinking it's a man, it's a woman, it's a man, it's a woman. I'm sure they can see he's trying to dress like a woman. I'm sure as a waitstaff, you're probably wanting to please the customer. But they know, they know on an instinctual level, it's a man. And so the more he makes them take the rehypnol of it's she, her, it's she, her, it's she, her, it's meant to dull you. It's meant to sort of deaden those senses so that you you will affirm their delusion. You do lose the concept of two sexes, of what womanhood is, even though, as you so accurately point out, you know it when you see it. There's some, you may not be able to find the words to define it, but you know it, you know it when you see it. And it's important to know it. Yeah, this is this is what the Soviets used to call double think because you have to you had to lie, you had to believe the lie, but all the while you knew that the lie was a lie. And that you know, that was how they defended their system when the economy was collapsing. They would say, Oh, everything's going great. The person saying this knew it was a lie, but he had to believe the lie and he had to speak the lie. And that's that's very damaging. It's very psychologically damaging. You know, it's damaging when you have to say that, you know, crime in the black community is the same as crime as the white community. It's not, you know, it's it's just not. And it's the same way. It's very damaging to say that I have to look at this guy and call him a woman. You know, Health and Human Services, Rachel Levine, they've now decreed that you have to use uh, the, the wrong pronoun. It is forcing people, it is a clear violation of the First Amendment to force people to lie because the government thinks a lie is virtuous. And I really believe this. I, this has been my hobby horse for so long. Uh, lies are never virtuous. There's no such thing as a virtuous lie. There's such a thing as a white lie where you tell people they look nice when maybe they don't. But uh, other than that, I think that that has been that principle has been used to just expand this idea that somehow telling the truth is a cruel thing to do. Telling the truth is a racist thing to do. You, how can you fix anything? How can you address anything? How can you live as an honest human being of integrity without being able to say, oh, I see a man in front of me. I'm going to call him sir. That's what that's what he is. I, you know, it, it, it really is. It's It's funny because it's Monty Python. It's people dressing up in funny costumes and walking around pretending there's something they're not. There's something comical about that. But underlying it is, is something that's not so funny, which is this idea that in order to be virt virtuous, you have to lie. And that to me is what woke culture is. That to me what that to me is what political correctness is. And all of it is meant to silence you because leftism doesn't work. And if you can speak, then you're going to say, hey, you know what? You know, you guys turned San Francisco into a hellhole. It was a beautiful city and now it stinks. And they just don't want you to do that because that means they'll get voted out of office and nobody wants that to happen. It really is the emperor's clothes. That's what it is. It's the emperor's clothes that you're not what's, supposed to say that the emperor's not wearing any clothes because then everyone will see it. What's going to happen now as a result of guys like this is service personnel will just get rid of ma'am and sir. They will just will try not to use a term of respect when serving you your meal or taking your order. And so it's just a tiny erosion of the day to day politeness that we used to show to each other. Just a tiny erosion. I don't get to call, get called ma'am anymore, madam, what have you. You don't get to call be called sir because of that guy, because he's gone in there and harassed the wait staff for the way that they referred to him, which was accurate the way they, they did. And I was thinking about this recently because there was something, somebody wrote a piece, I can't remember who it was, but they were writing a piece about um, 
Travis Kelsey and the way he opened the door for Taylor Swift. Everybody was obsessed with these two. And it was just like a gentlemanly thing to do. And it occurred to me that, yes, but why is this being written about? Because the feminists have scrubbed all that chivalry from acceptable behavior between men and women now. Now it's an offense for a man to hold the door, the actual door or the car door. It's an offense for him to, as my husband does, and I love it, when we're walking on the sidewalk to gently sort of get me to the inside and he walks closest to the traffic. God forbid something were to happen. It's just a sweet kindness. You know, it's an offense for him to offer you the coat when you're cold. All we could go down, but it's like all these little nits turn into big cuts and then you have a gaping hole in these societal behaviors that used to make us feel, I think, more connected to one another, more safe, more loved, I just better about our community, our relationships. And it starts with guys like that. To me, you're hitting on, this is such an important point. For 99.9% of us, over 99.9% of history, the differences between men and women have been one of the key sources of joy in human life. I'm not just talking about sex. I'm talking about just the fact of living in a world of men and women is one of the delights of being alive. Life is very hard. Life ends in death. Life is full of pain, but its joys have to be enjoyed fully. You really have to be able to drink its joys to the dregs in order to live with any kind of dignity and fun at all. And the, the thing about there being men and women for most of us is one of the great pleasures of life. And they have done everything they can to deprive us of that pleasure, to deprive us of just the things you were describing, the things that I do for my wife, as well as your husband doing for you, the things that she does for me, and I'm sure you do for your husband. These are the things that make life joyful. And it, it is, if you had to list the things that are beautiful about life, the first thing I think most of us would say is the love, you know, the love between a man and a maid is one of the things that makes life worth living. And I see that young people have been deprived of this. I, when I go and give speeches at colleges, I sometimes say, the first thing I sometimes say is it looks to me like young women are miserable. And after I'm finished with the speech, any young woman who's not miserable, I want them to get up and tell me and tell me why, or if you are miserable, tell me what. Not one woman has ever gotten up and said, and these are young people, not one of them has ever gotten up and said, no, I'm, I'm really happy with the way things are. The left has managed to poison one of the, maybe the central joy of life. You know, what else is there? There's beauty, there's art, there's music, and there's the differences between the sexes. This is one of the things that we love. And the fact that you know, because some small percentage of the population is gay, some even tinier, tinier percentage is confused about their sexuality, that we have to somehow suspend this major joy, this central joy of human life, this central uh, bliss of God's creation is insane. And the fact that people haven't fought back against it tooth and nail and haven't said, you know, no, you know, I, I, I really like that they're women. You know, one of the things that really bothers me on the right is when they talk about transgenderism and people say, well, it's not natural. And I, like, I don't care about it. when when was nature, my friend? You know, I mean, it's not natural. It's natural for it to be 100 degrees in the summer. I use air conditioning to get around. It's not that it's not natural. It's that it's a good. It is a good that you were made a woman. It is a good that I was made a man. And it is one of the things that gives us joy in living. And that joy of living has been we basically have been told that that joy of living is bigotry in and of itself. And I think that that's a sin. I think it's a sin to do to young people who are in that place where the 
love between a man and woman is so central to their happiness and so central to their family formation and to their future. I think it's a sin to tell to old people who have enjoyed it so much all their lives. I, I just think it's, it just is a, it, it just shows you what a drab, mean, gray, small philosophy leftism is and materialism is. And it's one of the reasons we should throw it out completely. You know, baby and bathwater both. Drab, mean, small, gray. Nailed it. Stand by more with Andrew Claven. I'm really wanting to ask you as a man formerly of Hollywood about Matthew Perry. We'll take that up next. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Oh, joy. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash Megan. You make me happier than I ever thought I could be. And if you let me, I will spend the rest of my life trying to make you feel the same way. <laughs> Monica, will you marry me? Yes. <laughs> sweeter moments with Matthew Perry, who we fell in love with as he played the role of Chandler Bing for 10 years on NBC uh, as part of the cast of Friends. Learned a lot about him in the days since his passing. Uh, just a few days ago at age 54, they said he died of a heart attack in his hot tub. He had posted a picture of himself in that same jacuzzi hot tub overlooking the Hollywood, you know, view uh, landscape just a week prior, enjoying that exact scene that he would later, we're told, be found dead in front of. Uh, his assistant reportedly finding him. They said they did not find drugs around him at the time, prescription or otherwise, though there were prescription drugs in the house for anti-anxiety, anti-depression. Um, but the coroner so far has said the toxicology report will have to wait. I mean, they're going to do a full scan. I raise it because, of course, he was very open about his battle with addiction and um, I have a lot of thoughts on this, and I know you do too, Andrew. I'm so sad he's gone. I feel like um, he found a way through just the nastiest form of addiction there is. You know, it's just addiction is never good and it's never easy to beat. But for some people, it can truly be a monster that is just almost impossible to, to navigate. And that's how it was for him. He tried so many times to get sober and couldn't. 
And then finally, he said around 2002, he did manage to get sober with some, you know, falls off the wagon between then and now. So for about the past 20 years, and he's de devoted his life since then to trying to help others do the same, just devoted the entire last 20 plus years to trying to help others find sobriety. And he said, that's what he wanted to be remembered for. What do you make of this untimely death? Very hard to make something out of it. I have to tell you, like I'm, I'm the opposite of a celebrity person. I'm the guy who's watching, you know, the NFL. And when they cut to Taylor Swift, I'm like, please get back to the football. But last year, for a reason, I have no, I have no idea why I did this. I just started listening to his autobiography. And I got to admit, I became obsessed with it. Here was a guy who prayed to God as a young man. He said, God, all I want is to be famous. If you make me famous, you can do anything you want to me. I've never seen someone who had every wish come true, but that was this guy. Matthew Perry had every wish came come true. He not only became famous, he had the iconic show of his era. Uh, he had the top movie of while he had the top show. He had the top movie, the whole nine yards. He had some of the most beautiful Hollywood women as his lovers. He, uh, Julia Roberts was one of them for a long period of time. Everything, even when he wrote about his addiction, it was the number one bestseller. Everything that he wanted came true. And all the while he was doing this, he was pouring enough poison into his body to kill out the bottoms. And I, I'm, I'm not blaming him for this. All I will say is that you read this book, you read his memoir, and all you can think is everything that you think about addiction is false. It's not a disease because you can give it up. You can't give up cancer. You can give up addiction. So it's different than a disease. And it and it's not about like you keep thinking, well, maybe if you find would find God, but he finds God. He has an actual communion with God doesn't stop. And when you say he got sober, even that's not entirely true. He just his body just wears out. He's so sick by the time he's damaged himself so badly that he loses the desire for drugs. What this is, what this demon is, I cannot say. But I, all I know is I sat there and looked at it and thought maybe it was the original prayer. It was wrong. Maybe when you pray for fame, you're just praying for the wrong thing. You know, maybe to pray to do great work and hope that fame comes with it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I felt bad for him. Uh, you know, I would watch friends. He always reminded me of one of my little brothers. And so I actually felt some kind of weird connection with the guy. I knew people who worked with him and loved him. Uh, he was apparently a very, very lovable person. Uh, and, but the, the commitment to self-destruction in his life was terrible to behold. It did make me think of demons. It made me think of something that has possessed you beyond your ability to control. Megan, I don't have an answer to that. I wish I could come up with some kind of pat thing that I could say, you know, but I, I really feel that something bigger than all of our little pat philosophies was at work in this guy's life. Uh, he was almost a parable of, of self-destruction and just it's so sad because, you know, it wasn't it wasn't in the purpose of anything. It was obviously just some kind of glitch in his mental system that did this. I, I really think when you listen to the number of rehab uh, centers he went to, the number of treatments he had, the number of different treatments, it made me feel we know nothing about this. We have nothing to deal with this. There's no way to do to deal with this except to stop. And and I, I all did, I can he, say did, about this. Do you remember, Andrew, did he write about his childhood, you know, did he yes. write about what drove him to drink? Yes. He he blamed the divorce of his parents and that when his mother uh, remarried, she was the um, she was the press American officer for 
for uh, Pierre Trudeau. And uh, she was just working too hard. And he basically felt like an outsider in his own family. Uh, you know, it's something that happens to a lot of people. I think divorce is a disaster. I believe divor divorcing with small children is a moral disaster. Every time I hear somebody say, oh, the kids will be fine. I just want to shake them because the kids are not fine. You're, that, that, your marriage is the planet. Your children live on. You are blowing up that planet. They will never be fine again. It's a terrible thing to do. And yet other people have survived it without this commitment to self-destruction. And it's just, just a remarkable story of a guy who had everything, got everything he wanted, accept some kind of love that he was missing, some kind of solidity inside himself. And it's very sad. It really is because, you know, after all, he wasn't hurting anybody. He was just a funny guy, made people laugh. He was a good writer. Uh, he was a talented actor. And uh, it was it's a terrible thing to see. And I, 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 I felt this way about Seymour uh, Hoffman, who was a great, great, maybe the best actor of his generation, the image of him pumping heroin into his body until he died. Uh, it's a terrible thing. And all you just want to say to people is stay off that stuff. Just don't go near it. Uh, you know, I, I can't the tell you how angry people get. Yeah. Of seeking fame and getting hooked to drugs. It's it's a very uh, familiar pair. Yep. And it's taken so many great people. I was just thinking like the number of times my kids say, what happened to him? And I say, oh, he died of drugs, he died from drugs. Prince, we were just talking about Prince. Um, what happened? He died of drugs. What happened to Michael Jackson? He died of drugs too, really. I mean, it was different kind of propofol being given to him by Dr. Conrad Murray every night to fall asleep, but same, but combo with, with fame. Matthew Perry, whether he was intoxicated on the night of his death or not, died of drugs. Um, you know, the amount of damage that he had done to his body over the years. That's obvious. Phyllis, Philip Seymour Hoffman, we could keep going all day. And I do think like there's probably no coincidence that the people who chase fame have a hole inside of them that is unfillable. And when fame inevitably doesn't fail, doesn't succeed in filling it, they turn to something else. And that something else, drugs is even more pernicious. But chasing fame is not only not to be done, it's a red flag warning sign that something's wrong. I think that you... You haven't been taught a certain lesson. You haven't been given a certain goodness. You need to stop and reevaluate and try to fill that up right then and there without one iota of fame, because, you know, fame does nothing for you. Fame corrupts. Fame, fame is a dark force. If anything, it is not an uplifting, enlightening one. And too many people find that out the hard way. I, I'm sad for him. I will say I thought the statement that the other friends, the other five co-stars put out was a good one. It really was a good one. They wrote, we're all so utterly devastated. They gave this to people on Monday by the loss of Matthew. We were more than just castmates. We we're a family. There is so much to say, but right now we're going to take a moment to grieve and process this unfathomable loss. In time, we'll say more and as and when we're able. For now, our thoughts and our love are with Maddie's family, his friends, and everyone who loved him around the world, signed by all five of the co-stars. It's a sad day and it's a reminder of intervening early with your own children or your own loved ones or yourself, should you find yourself with this struggle. Andrew, what a blessing to have you here. It's so great to talk to you. As always, love it when you come on. Please support him by the great new book, The House of Love and Death, an Amazon choice, a starred Publishers Weekly book, as this entire series has been. I'm sure it will be a New York Times bestseller. See you soon, my friend. Thanks a lot, Megan. And we will be right back with a few closing thoughts on Halloween. Don't go away. Before we go today, I have a Halloween horror story for you that involves a puffer, a puffer, fish, pumpkin, and my Strudwick. So as you may know from last year, we like to do this pumpkin that has candy corn glue sticked to it. 
candy corns all over a pumpkin and it looks really cool and you can put it the candy corns flat or you can make them stick out and create a different look. I found this online years ago and I thought this is a great thing to do with the kids and I love it. So we decided to do it last year and we had a disaster where Strudwick got up on the table like a bunch of dumbasses. We left it there unfinished and he started to eat it, but we caught him in the act and got him away from our puffer fish pumpkin. Flash forward to this year. We're working on the puffer fish pumpkin. It's coming along, but we have to take a break because it takes a few days. We put it away. We put it in the bar area of our house to which Strud does not have access because we are no longer as dumb as we used to be. He, there's a closed door, a sliding door that he can't open unless we're negligent and leave it a little bit open uh, between him and the pumpkin. So it's protected or so we think. Well, then suddenly last week, Strudwick started getting sick. He threw up after his breakfast. I gave him like a sensitive stomach dinner. He threw that up too. I'm like, oh, something's wrong. The next morning, threw up again. I said, he's got to go in, got to go to the vet. So they could take him, but they could only take him during the show. So enter Abigail Finan, who says, I will take him to the vet. She takes him to the vet. They say, we think Strudwick has a stomach obstruction. Something's in there. That's not supposed to be, an, oh God, what? They do an ultrasound. They got to get your permission. First they do x-rays. Then they have to do an ultrasound. All I can see is the the dollar signs in my eyeballs as the, the cash register's going up. How much is this visit going to cost? But, you know, I love my dog. So we get all the tests. All she can say is there's some massive amount of foreign material in his belly. Like, oh, my God. He, got, he has to go to the animal hospital, and they either need to do surgery or they need to give him an endoscopy. Abigail Finan takes Strudwick over. I'm still on the air with all of you while all this is happening. She takes him over to the animal hospital. They decide they might be able to get it with an endoscopy and um, they'll get back to me. $7,000 later, $7,000 later, they tell me that they got some stuff out of his stomach, but they actually think that he passed whatever was the obstruction while he was there. I'm like, well, what was it? Because originally I thought it was cabbage or that dried fall corn that you put in front of your house at this time of year to make it look fally and harvesty. So I was getting rid of all that. Abby took a picture of me later as I was cutting down the corn and I gave away the cabbage. I got rid of all of it so that he wouldn't have another $7,000 stomach obstruction. Only to find out later, that's not what came out of him. Sorry to be graphic, but it looked like little glue circles and some red wax. No one knew what that was. We thought the red wax, maybe it was from those baby bell cheeses. You ever eat those baby bell with the red wax? Maybe you got one of those and that was bothering. Then we went to work on the puffer fish pumpkin again. And guess what we saw? Little remnants of glue circles without their candy corns and huge swaths of the pumpkin that had already been completed now naked without either their glue or their candy corn. And guess what else he ate? The wax red Halloween lips that were serving as the lips of the puffer fish pumpkin. That's what the red wax was. It was horrifying. So as it turns out, that stuff is not easily digested, at least not by a dog. So now Strudwick has got a shaved belly. He's got a shaved paw from where they, you know, gave his little IV. He's back on the eating trail again. He um, managed to get in and out of that kitchen in a way that nobody understood he could do. So that's a good red warning for the rest of us. And I'm happy to report to you that we did last night finally finish the puffer fish pumpkin. And I can safely say it is the most expensive puffer fish pumpkin in all of Connecticut. So <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. Hope my kids do. 
Uh, I hope all the kids who come by trick-or-treating tonight do. And um, Godspeed. I do not recommend this for your family. Happy Halloween. Thanks for joining me today. And we're back tomorrow to dive deep into the Trump trials. See you then. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. 